All right, guys, let me pull you back together. We'll go ahead and jump into some things this morning. Uh, a lot of stuff. I know last week we covered two full chapters in our study, but this week just less than one, uh, but ton of ton of content. I really enjoyed it. I want to give a public shout out to uh, the Village Church. I've really enjoyed, especially this week, I feel like they, they drew my attention to some things in their questions that I, I'd never really seen before. So, um, uh, great job, Village Church. Excited that we're able to use this study. Let me pray for us, uh, and we'll jump into what we've got today. Lord, uh, I pray now over this teaching time, Father, we have, uh, each of us, we've studied this, we've, we've discussed it with other brothers, Lord, and now we're going to um, sit before your word and and contemplate it together as a big group, Lord. And I just pray that uh, you continue to clarify who you are, who you've called us to be, Lord. Uh, continue to convict us of places where our lives don't measure up to your word. Uh, pray that uh, you'd be with us this morning as, as we guide through this text, Lord. I pray you'd be with me as I try to teach through it, Lord. Help me to speak only what is true um, and let your power uh, surround my words in, in the ways that you want to, um, that we might receive it and, and change in our lives, Lord. So, God, our time, it's in your name we pray all these things. Amen. Uh, real quick, a few housekeeping things. Um, we are approaching the end of our uh, part one study. Um, so, uh, we've got today, and we have three more weeks of content before we're done with um, Acts part one. So, we're going through chapter 12. Uh, you know, today we're, we're finishing up with, with chapter eight. So, a lot of exciting things are, are coming up in the um, final few chapters here leading up to uh, 12, um, so hope you'll stick with us. But uh, on the calendar, we're skipping the week of Thanksgiving. So we meet on Wednesday mornings. The Wednesday before Thanksgiving, we will not meet. Um, so just keep that in mind. We will meet next week, then it's the week off, and then we come back for two more weeks uh, as we finish up right right there at the beginning of December. I think December 4th or 7th, um, one of those dates is our last one. But uh, I'll keep reminding you of that. We'll send out emails as we typically do, but wanted to make sure you were aware of that. Um, okay, a lot of stuff playing out here in chapter 8. Um, it was a little bit challenging for me to try to unify this into some sort of uh, message, but before we dive into all that, what I want to do is, is again highlight our major themes. Uh, the themes that we've been tracking, remember, are the, the, big, um, the big point that Luke is making to us as we uh, study this book. These are the ones that I want to be drilled down deep into your heart by the time you finish um, Acts. And, and for the rest of your life, knowing that the book of Acts is about some important things. Uh, so the five of them, the first one, the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, so a lot of work of the Holy Spirit present this week. Uh, the miracles of Philip there in Samaria, the empowerment of his preaching, this very unique moment uh, where the Holy Spirit, uh, though he had saved uh, these, in my opinion, he had already saved these Samaritans. They were baptized having believed in the message that Philip had preached. Um, he had not yet fallen on the Samaritans, which is unique and strange and draws the attention of the apostles who come and lay hands. What's going on there? We're, we're going to talk about that, of course. Um, but clearly some work of the Holy Spirit as he does fall. Um, we also see uh, Holy Spirit on big display in this uh, conversion story of the eunuch. Um, you know, the Holy Spirit leading Philip to him there on the road uh, from Jerusalem back down to Ethiopia. Um, and then we find out the Holy Spirit can teleport us, which is a cool thing um, because he takes uh, Philip away after, after this man has been saved and baptized. He just 
teleports them to a new place. So a, a lot of stuff happening with the, the Holy Spirit there in chapter 8. Um, second big thing, witnessing for Christ. Again, lots happening here, all centered on our boy Philip. Man, he's an evangelist. Um, and would we all seek to be uh, men who evangelize like he does? I think that'll be one of our big takeaways today. Um, third big theme, development of the church. Uh, signi- very significant this week, the church goes uh, multi-ethnic, multi-tribal. Uh, you, you move from having a, um, a church there just in Jerusalem to a, a multinational church as the first Gentile is saved, this Ethiopian eunuch who's going back to Ethiopia. So the gospel is beginning to develop outside of Jerusalem, uh, which is significant. I also think you see some of this, and we'll get into this in the teaching time, but I, I think you see some development of the church with regards to this moment of the apostles coming to Samaria to lay hands on these believers. So uh, what you're seeing in that is apostolic authority over the entire church established in the book of Acts. That's going to continue to develop in uh, Acts part 2. This brings up a question for today. Is there apostolic authority over Emmaus church today? You know, is there, you know, this is what the Catholics believe, that there is a a continuous line of succession from Peter and the original apostles. Uh, They call that man the Pope. Um, and that he is authoritative over the entire church. Uh, we believe, uh, as, as Protestants and as Bible people, we believe that ended with the age of the apostles, that the apostles did not pass on their apostolic authority. Um, but regardless, here at this time, uh, in the early church, very clearly God is entrusting apostolic authority to the apostles. Um, so keep an eye on that one, significant development of church leadership uh, here in Acts. Um, salvation history, uh, again, this, this theme is about Jesus being continuous with the Old Testament. So he is the Messiah. He is, uh, Judaism isn't um, disconnected from Christianity. It is the lead up into Christ. Um, you don't see a lot of development with this theme in this chapter. I think a little bit with the Samaritans. I'll, I'll point that out as we get to them. Um, the Samaritans were Jewish people, and they did have a belief in the Pentateuch and Moses. They had some uh, Jewish religious history, and here they're now receiving their Messiah, which is uh, pretty profound. So a little bit there, but not a ton in that theme. Uh, the last theme, the fifth one, uh, the Great Commission, Evangelization of the Nations. Uh, this is the focal point of this chapter to me. Um, and so we'll focus here in our teaching time. Uh, clearly, the gospel is going forth out of Jerusalem into the nations as the church expands out of Jerusalem. So um, with that, let's jump in. Uh, I think the biggest thing playing out, again, is the, uh, the way the church just explodes out of Jerusalem here in chapter 8. Um, remember, Acts uh, 1, verses 6 through 8 kind of serve as our heading for the entire book. We talked about this back when we first saw it, that Luke has organized... Uh, his history of the book of Acts around Jesus's instructions to the early church. And remember what they were. The early church came to him and said, you know, what are we, uh, are you now going to create the kingdom here on the earth? Uh, Is it time for that? And Jesus says, no, that's not what I'm up to. I'm not creating an earthly kingdom of political power. I'm creating a spiritual kingdom of redeemed souls. And he says, you will receive power and then you'll be my witnesses. And he gives sort of this outline in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Um, And that's what we're seeing playing out here. Thus far, in chapters 1 through 7, all we've really seen is the gospel expanding in Jerusalem. Um, And now, 8 through 12 especially, you're going to really see it move into that second segment, Samaria and Judea. Obviously, you see that a big time uh, in this 
in this chapter right here uh, with Philip moving into Samaria. But, um, but thus far, there's been massive growth in the church in Jerusalem, and here it, he's exploding with the power of the Spirit. He's exploding the church out of Jerusalem into uh, the rest of Israel. Um, and what are we seeing? Again, the, the big orienting thought that we covered week one. How does Jesus build his church? He builds it through the power of the Spirit and the witnessing of the church. Now those are that's Acts 1:8. And it's again, I just I want that to be in your in your bones. I want you to realize that God gives us his spirit so that we would be witnesses. This is how he builds his church. Um, and it's on display again and again. I'm going to point that out. Um, but it, it unfolds in just an incredible fa- fashion here in chapter 8 as the Holy Spirit overcomes some really profound obstacles that sort of stood as walls for gospel outreach out of Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit is just knocking down walls as Jesus establishes His church. So uh, three big points I want to point out um, to organize and guide through our time. Number one, the gospel overcomes persecution. So uh, before we get into the, the stuff in Samaria, what I want you to note is what's playing out in verse 4. And, and Jim did a great job of teeing this up for me last week. Um, but I want to make sure you're seeing this. Uh, so the church was in Jerusalem. And to be honest, it didn't seem like they were having many plans at all for leaving Jerusalem. Like they're expanding. Things are going well there. Uh, and the way that God had appointed, interestingly enough, for the gospel to get out of Jerusalem was persecution which is a a little bit surprising. So at the end of 8, remember, Stephen has just been martyred. We have the first martyr of the church. There's been a little bit of persecution prior to chapter 7, but in 7, it moves from, from, you know, shall we say, a really low point on the dial to full steam, uh, a a lot of persecution pouring out of the Jewish leaders into the church. So Stephen is stoned, and then look look at verses 1 through 3 of 8 with me. Uh, It says, as uh, Stephen is, is killed, on that day there arose a great persecution against the church. So it's not just persecution, it's great persecution. So much so, and we know it's huge because uh, two things, everybody scatters. The church, we're, we're, we can assume it's somewhere around 30,000 people at this point, if you do the math on all the numbers. They're running for their lives. Uh, they're, they're leaving behind their homes. They're leaving behind their goods. They're, uh, this is not small at all. If you're a Christian, you're being pulled out of your home and, and beaten, put in prison, maybe even killed. Uh, that's not specifically said here, but given the context, I think it's an, a, an easy assumption to make. You know, it says Paul was ravaging the church. That is like a, a word you'd use to describe a wolf and a, and a lamb, right? Like that's not, a, that's not a small word at all. So clearly intense persecution playing out. And I just want you to contemplate for a moment, you know, how Satan felt at this moment. You know, how the, how the, the demons and the... Uh, even, even the religious leaders who were you know, responsible for this persecution, how they were feeling at this exact moment at the end of uh, verse 3 there in chapter 8. Um, Ananias, uh, Caiaphas, and, and Saul, these leaders in the, in the Jewish Sanhedrin, in the Jewish council, they're probably feeling pretty good, right? Like, we're winning. We're, they're running for their lives. This enormous movement that has taken over our city that even now priests are being saved into, uh, we have found a way to stamp it out, to crush their spirits. We're costing them their homes, their, their wealth, their lives. We're winning. They're, they're on the run. Uh, they have these weapons of, of harm and persecution in their hands, and they're seeking to destroy the church. And by all earthly appearances, they're successful. And yet look what God does in verse 4. Now those who are scattered went on preaching the word. They don't stop for a moment. 
which is just showing us the gospel overcomes persecution. Jesus continues to build his church by, through the Holy Spirit, giving people courage and boldness, even though they have nothing, even though their lives are on the line. He, he, the Holy Spirit uses this weapon of persecution that, that Satan has appointed to kill the church, and God just turns it as a tool to expand the church and, and continue to build his church in new places. Um, and I just don't want you to miss that. The schemes of Satan. His best plans for uh, destroying the work of God, his best weapons of destruction against the people of God are nothing against our sovereign God. There's no threats. You know, he, he, God can use even the worst things, the worst plans of, of Satan to bring about his plan. He, he not only can stop Satan's plans, he can use Satan's plans for good. You know, that's Romans 8.28, that, that uh, God can work all things together, even the bad stuff. He can, he can work together bad things happening in your life for your good and for the good of his, his purposes. Uh, he knows how to overcome the plots and the schemes that come against his church, his gospel, and his people. He's a sovereign God. He knows how to see them coming and to use them. So what does that mean? It means there's no threat to us. You know, there's no guarantee of physical safety here. I, I don't want you to miss that this was a painful moment for the church. This was hard for them to endure. But what I want you to feel is that even in hard moments, God is still on his throne using it. Uh, there's not a threat to your soul. There's not a threat to the gospel. There's not a threat to Jesus' church. Um, God knows how to use all these things uh, for good. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. You know, all, all of Romans 8 is like nothing but just a, a ring of promises to this effect, uh, giving us great confidence uh, that God can use even bad moments um, for our good. So, um, just, just remember that. Jesus will build his church, and the gates of hell won't overcome it. You know, that's a promise from Christ. And you're seeing it on display in chapter 8 uh, as the gospel overcomes this persecution here. So, second, second point, the gospel overcomes tribal divisions. I want to zero in here on the Samaritans. Um, up to this point, again, uh, the church has really been nothing more than a Jewish church, a Jewish movement, a, a subset, even a sect of Judaism, you could say, based in Jerusalem. A ton of growth happening in the church, but it's all there in the Jewish community in Jerusalem. Um, and two shocking things happen in this narrative as Philip goes to Samaria. Number one, Philip went to Samaria. That's surprising. And secondly, the Samaritans listened to him. That's also very surprising. And it's all because of this, you know, blood feud that existed between the Jews and the Samaritans. Did anybody read up on this? I know uh, you kind of have to go extra biblical to, to feel the whole weight of this uh, side of the narrative, but there's a lot of uh, writings from Josephus and other people at that time who can uh, articulate to us this division that existed between Samaria and uh, the Jews. But what's interesting is it's really not an ethnic division. They're all Jews. So this all goes back to uh, the, the time of the kings after King David and Solomon, the, the kingdom of Israel split apart. And there was the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom under King Omni, this is 1 Kings 16 if you want to go read about it, they settled as their capital, Samaria. The southern kingdom had Jerusalem as their capital. So you, you kind of get, and they, they started to call themselves Samaritans. Uh, Samaria sort of becomes the name of the northern kingdom. Israel and, and the Jews, uh, tribe of Judah, uh, kingdom of Judah, sort of is, is the names that are referred to the southern kingdom. But Assyria comes uh, and conquers the northern kingdom, conquers Samaria. This is 722 B.C. And they take away, just like with uh, when Babylon takes over the, the southern kingdom, um, that's when uh, uh, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, all that stuff happens. For Assyria, uh, it was the same way. They took away a lot of the Jews. 
Those are the lost tribes of Israel that have been scattered among the nations. Um, but then they left some Jews, but then they resettled Assyrians in uh, Samaria. So what the Samarit- that's when the Samaritans were sort of born, as Assyrians were uh, honestly intermarrying and, and, and bearing children with Jewish people living in the northern kingdom of Israel, to the result that they sort of mixed the religion, they uh, mixed the purity of the Jewish blood, and the Samaritans became almost like a half race, if, if you should say. That, that's how they were viewed. They were, they were looked down upon by the Jews. They weren't considered true Jews. Their religion was tainted. Their Judaism was tainted. And so that's why in the New Testament you see such friction between the Jews and the Samaritans. They, they hated each other. Uh, the, the Samaritans set up Mount Gerizim in about 400 B.C. They built their own temple on their own mountain. Uh, and there you had uh, in, in Jerusalem the, the temple um, built, built on the Mount of Olives. So uh, they, they just had all these fights. This is why in John 4, you remember Jesus and the woman at, at the well, she's shocked that he's even talking to her. She says, how is it that you, a Jew, are talking to me, a Samaritan woman? Um, they don't speak to one another. They don't interact. There's, there's a blood feud in a lot of ways. They have that conversation about, you say we're supposed to worship on that mountain. My people say we're supposed to worship on this mountain. That's, that's the friction that's happening there. So it would be totally surprising to a first century Jew to read this account, that Philip would go and actually preach to these people. And what's even more shocking is verse 6, where it says the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. They wouldn't listen to Jews. But this is uh, exactly what happen, happens here. And how does it happen? The same pattern we've seen again and again. Through the work of the Spirit and the witnessing of the church, God builds His uh, church. The Spirit works through Philip to do signs and wonders. We know there's some healings. We know there's um, some casting out of demons. Those are mentioned. Perhaps there are other signs. But miraculous signs being done by Philip, this deacon, uh, there in Samaria, that draws a crowd. And then the Spirit preaches uh, through Philip, It it seems in every way to be spirit-empowered preaching here. He preaches, verse 12, it says, the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus, and the people believe they are saved. The unthinkable happens. Samaritans receive a Jewish gospel, and they get saved as a result. The gospel has overcome enormous tribal barriers that existed uh, and and does the unthinkable. You get uh, believers being born, the church expanding out of uh, Jerusalem into Samaria. And, and then you get this very surprising moment. And I want to I touch on this. I think we have enough time to, to deal with it somewhat thoroughly. Though they are saved, and I, the reason I think they're saved is because it says they believe in the name of Jesus and they're baptized as a result. So I don't see... So there's one theory that the reason you have this Holy Spirit uh, moment with the apostles is because uh, they weren't, the Samaritans weren't actually saved. They hadn't received the full gospel. I don't see that here at all. That will show up, I think it's Acts 19, where people have believed in John the Baptist, but they haven't received Christ yet. Um, so they don't have the Spirit yet. But, but here it appears, by all accounts, that you have true believers, and yet there's something strange happening. The outpouring of miraculous signs of the Holy Spirit, most likely tongues and prophecy, that have thus far accompanied pretty much all conversions in the early church, they're not appearing here. And this surprises Philip. You know, the, the Samaritans aren't surprised. They don't know any different. The gospel has come to them for the first time. They're an unreached people group at this time. But Philip is surprised, so he calls for the apostles to come. He calls for, uh, he goes and tells them they've received the Lord, <laughs> but we need some help here. So they send Peter and John from Jerusalem, who 
finding out that they had not received the, the, the Spirit. The Spirit has not. And I, I want to be careful here. I actually do think they received the Spirit. Uh, biblically, it, it's pretty clear you cannot receive Christ without the Spirit's work. Uh, that's, that's 1 Corinthians 12. No one can say Jesus is Lord without the Spirit working in him. So the Spirit was working, but he hadn't fallen miraculously. There's this strange thing playing out. The, Holy, or, or the apostles see this. They lay hands on them. They pray for them. And the signs immediately appear. The Holy Spirit shows up in dramatic fashion. And you get another day of Pentecost moment. Don't miss that. You had a day of Pentecost for the Jews in chapter 2. But now you're getting a day of Pentecost for the Samaritans as well. This outpouring of the Spirit that's very dramatic. Uh, and, and I think, you know, this is not the normal way we see in Scripture. Normally we see the Spirit coming at the moment of salvation. That's what Peter preaches to the Jews in, on the day of Pentecost. The ones that are being converted, he says, repent and, and uh, believe and be baptized for the forgiveness of the sins. Your, your sins, you will receive the Holy Spirit. So clearly indwelling and filling happens in the Bible most of the time simultaneously. So the question we have to ask is, why is this happening separated here? Why is God doing something abnormal in this moment? Well, I think, I think this, is, this is my theory. I think a lot of commentators agree. As many as I read, they all were kind of in unison on this point, though there are a few theories. I think that the reason why you have this division is God is using this moment to seal two very divided people into one church. He is, he is overcoming ethnic divisions uh, and tribal divisions that are playing out among these two people to seal them as one people. He, he was so dramatic in this moment because, uh, because they needed, the, the division between them was so dramatic. So by pouring out the Spirit in such a vivid way, what does he do? He breaks down prejudice in the church against the Samaritans. So in all likelihood, and, and the, um, the study did a good job of showing this, in all likelihood, even Peter and John had a little bit of a prejudice against the Samaritans. So by doing it in such a vivid way here, he breaks down the prejudice in their hearts because, look, they've received the same Spirit as, as us. They're no different than us. We're united in Christ. The Spirit has fallen on them just like He did with us. In fact, I think as they're marching to Samaria, having received this letter from Philip, I think they're thinking, of course they haven't received the Spirit. They're Samaritans. They can't be saved. And yet here the Spirit falls in such a dramatic way before their eyes they can't deny it. And the same thing, I think He breaks down prejudice in the Samaritans' hearts against the Jews by doing it in this dramatic way. What does He do? He solidifies apostolic authority in Jerusalem over the Samaritan people. It would have been hard for them. You could easily see here the first church split where the Samaritans, though they received Christ, were not following Jerusalem. For 400 years, we have worshipped here and we will continue to worship here. Um, but what does God do? By, by pouring out the Spirit in such a dramatic fashion with the apostles present and through the apostles laying on their hands, what does He do? He creates one church, which is beautiful and important and valuable. I think that's why you have uh, this dramatic moment. At the end of it, everybody knows they're one church filled with one spirit under one name, the name of Jesus. Um, it's God building His church. You know, through dramatic power of the Holy Spirit, through the witnessing of His people, He is overcoming persecution. He's overcoming tribal divisions here. He's establishing unity for His church. Does all that make sense? I know that's confusing. Any questions that are lingering on that point? I think He's the deacon. I think he's the deacon. It is a valid question. But the text says that all the apostles remained in Jerusalem. That's why I think he's the deacon, yeah. Yeah, in, in my opinion, it, it appears to be uh, Philip the deacon, not 
uh, Philip the Apostle. And I think even the, the text points that out, but I think even what you're seeing with, uh, it's almost like the, the, the telescoping focus of Luke is zeroing in on, on the deacons for a moment here in 6, 7, and 8. So he's focused on Stephen, who is one of the deacons, and now he's focusing in on Philip. So uh, it, is, it is not totally clear. I will acknowledge that. But it appears to me to be a, a deacon. That's why he needs this apostles, the apostles' help. That's why he calls for them. If there's any further questions, we can talk about it after. All right, third point here. The gospel also overcomes ethnic divisions. So now, you know, again, this, this Samaritan thing was more of an internal tribal thing. They were all Jews. Technically, they just sort of had this beef with one another. Um, but with the Ethiopian eunuch, what you're seeing is a true cross-cultural, cross-ethnic uh, gospel outreach evangelism moment happening. The gospel pushing through one tribe or one people group, one ethnicity to a whole new one. Um, and this is the part where I loved what the Village Church did with this study. They did such a good job. Did you do the homework on, on, the, um, on the questions related to the eunuch? And they did such a good job of putting us in his position, of helping us feel how he must have felt as he's going back to Ethiopia after this, this experience. So I just want to help you see what they helped us see. Uh, this man, what do we know about him? The Ethiopian eunuch. He has traveled very far. 1,600 miles from Ethiopia to Jerusalem, if you did that Googling. That's the same distance from Atlanta to Salt Lake City. So, and, and he didn't have an airplane. So uh, this, is, this is a long journey. He didn't have a car. This is on chariot, probably being carried by servants. Uh, foot journey. This would have taken a long time to travel. He's a very important person. He's a servant of the queen in Ethiopia. He's in charge of her treasury. Clearly an influential man. Why did he come? He came to worship, which is so surprising. Why is an Ethiopian coming to uh, Jerusalem to worship, well, he must have heard the name of Yahweh somehow. He must have heard that of the God of Israel, uh, maybe even the name of Jesus. Perhaps all these, you know, uh, we're now after Jesus has, has resurrected, his, his season of ministry is over. Perhaps news of everything that was planned out in Israel, all these people being healed, had come down to Ethiopia somehow. Uh, maybe a, a merchant brought it down. We have to speculate here. But, uh, but somehow this man is curious enough and interested enough that he takes this time off, considerable time, considerable funds he uses to get up there to Israel in order to, uh, to, to worship. And yet, what do we know he likely experienced in Jerusalem? He was ostracized. He's a Gentile, which means he wasn't able to actually enter the temple. He could enter the outer court, but there was a dividing wall. Uh, in fact, uh, Paul mentions this dividing wall coming down in Christ in Ephesians, but, but there was literally a wall. We still have a record of parts of that wall in Jerusalem, you can go see it, that didn't allow any Gentile past it. Now, interestingly, the Old Testament never instructed the Jews to build that wall. They built that on their own. Uh, in fact, when, when uh, Solomon dedicates the temple, he even prays for foreigners who would come to the temple to worship. He says, this is Second uh, Chronicles 6, When a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for the sake of your name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays at this house, hear from heaven and do according to all the foreigner asks of you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you. So the temple was supposed to be this place of worship for all the nations, and yet the Jews had built this barrier, and even more so because he's a eunuch, he wasn't allowed in. That was part of the Levitical law. So the dividing wall held him at bay. So as he's leaving, how can you imagine he's feeling? Sad, maybe even hopeless. 
Somehow he gets his hand on the book of Isaiah. He bought a copy that would have been, been costly at this time. Um, and he's reading it as he's going home. But he doesn't have answers. He came looking for answers, and he's walking home without answers. And this is, this is just where I love our God, a seeking man who in his heart is, is coming after God. God finds a way to get the gospel in his ears. Uh, so you know the story. The angel moves to get Philip there. Uh, Philip, the spirit, speaks to Philip once he's on the road and says, go over to that chariot. He walks up to him, and he, he steps into this bold conversation. And the guy asks, you can feel his hopelessness. You know, Philip's question, do you understand what you're reading? He's reading a passage about Christ, and the man says, how can I unless someone guides me? I, I, that sentence is just, you can feel his sadness and his hopelessness. How can I understand this stuff? I want to, but I can't. I need help. Uh, I, I need, it's a verbal gospel. I need someone to proclaim to me, in other words. And by God's grace, he sent Philip to do that. Philip courageously shares the gospel with him. He uses his incredible knowledge of the word. He was a man of the word. And he, he preaches to him. The man believes he wants to be baptized. Philip does it, and then the Holy Spirit takes him away. Uh, but what does this man do? He, he's rejoicing, and he continues on his way back to Ethiopia. Again, Jesus builds his church. He knows how. And how does he do it? Power of the Spirit, witnessing of his people. So this is, this is what he does. Mountains of obstacles stood between this Ethiopian man and the gospel. There were geographic barriers, ethnic prejudice, uh, between Gentiles and Jews, the physical separation that existed at the temple, the confusion of the scriptures to an outsider who had no Jewish history. All these barriers stood between this man and the gospel, and Jesus busts through them all at once to establish his church and the gospel. For the first time, we see the gospel being received by a Gentile. We see our first Gentile convert. Um, that's what this passage is about. Chapter 8, when you step back and look at the whole thing, what you're seeing demonstrated is the power of the gospel to overcome all these divisions and become a global church. So, three big takeaways and then we're done. Number one, there are no threats that can harm God's plan. There's just none. <laughs> we are a secure people. Uh, not, not physically secure. There can be painful things, but we are spiritually secure. God has us. He's in control. There's no threats that harm God's plan. Number two, there's no people that God cannot save. Even people that feel like the gospel will never go to them, they would never believe, they would never receive, the gospel can't get there. No, God knows how to do it. Number three, the gospel overcomes barriers as His people. Uh, God overcomes barriers as His people witness, as His church witnesses. Uh, and that, that's just the big thing I want to point out to you. None of this happens without Philip opening his mouth. Dramatic revivals take place through the church being bold witnesses to Christ. So, two questions to consider, and then we're done, I promise. Who are the people in your life that you feel like cannot ever possibly come to Christ? And where are the places in your life where you are afraid to share your faith? I think this passage is driving us to some courage, not in ourselves, but in God's ability to save. And if there's people that you have just sort of written off. I'm not even trying anymore. Maybe children, maybe friends who feel very far from the Lord. <laughs> Jesus can do anything, and His Holy Spirit can too. So let's be bold witnesses uh, despite our fears. Let me pray for you guys. Lord, would you uh, raise us up, raise us up to be men who are uh, bold and courageous with your word, just as Philip was here, Lord. And may you empower us with your spirit. We know you have to work to save people. It's not just our words, it's, it's your power. So would you surround us with your power as we, as we open our mouths? Father, would you give us courage and empowerment? Would we see people saved? It's in your name that we pray all these things. Amen.